Hello and welcome to Sports Talk, brought to you by sportstalk.ie. I'm Denise O'Flaherty and over the next number of weeks I'll be interviewing a broad range of sports stars and personalities in a nice relaxed and casual format. So far in the series we've had Ray Houghton, Niall McGinn, Rory Connor, Chris Kamara, Declan King and Trevor Welch. Our show is sponsored by the fantastic Medell Healthcare and we would like to thank them for their continued sponsorship. This week's guest is RT Sports broadcaster Ivan Nicolin. Well, first of all, I'm going to ask you, Ivan, how was homeschooling? Because it was a completely different career path for you for the last couple of months. Homeschooling was, the honest answer is, didn't do a huge amount of it. I think a lot of people felt a lot of pressure to be doing great things and yeah. to be, you know, making inroads with all their kids and, you know, making sure milestones were reached and, and things were done. But to be honest with you, like, we're not teachers. and um, Well, most of us aren't, you know, qualified teachers. And, like, we have to be full-time parents. So I, I really felt like, you know, if we were keeping them happy, we were doing our job because yeah. if we were then trying to browbeat them into doing stuff, it's just a totally different relationship and they don't want you telling them what to do for school because you're not their teacher and they actually want their teacher to tell them what to do for school. So I didn't really lose any sleep over it. Um, now, having said that, I also just didn't worry because one of my sisters is a primary school teacher and she was so good, particularly in the first lockdown um, when, you know, the schools were really struggling to even come to terms with how they would manage. So we didn't have any kind of live calls um, in the first lockdown with the school. So my sister used to just live call my son and she knew the material because she was teaching the same class herself and she just kind of kept him going for us. And my daughter hadn't started school yet until this September. So we've only had one kind of, you know, lockdown with her. So, yeah, I think it was a combination of not kind of getting too worried about it. And then obviously I didn't have to because my sister was making sure he wasn't falling behind. Yeah, we're, we're fine. It, it was just more the stress of, I think people found it more stressful worrying about it yes. than actually the doing of it. And I think if you stop worrying about it and just not do it as much as, you know, you think, because kids, you can't have them do as much work at home as they would do in school. Like, no. It's just not possible. They're in school for five or whatever hours it is. There's no way you're going to get them to sit down. If you got half an hour out of them, you're doing well. Yeah, it was grand. It was more, the difficult part was more just being in the house all day, every day, the four of us, for the best part of a year. I don't think that's normal. I don't think it's necessarily healthy to be just with the same four people all the time. And, you know, we're all, the four of us are just real social butterflies. So we really miss our families and our friends and doing things like sport um, outside of the house. So that's actually been the more difficult part. Yeah. The education the education bit hopefully hasn't been, you know, hopefully we haven't done too much damage. But, you know, the teachers are great and they'll get them all back on track again in no time. So much was made about college students and obviously it was tough for Leave Us Earth students. Yes. Yeah. Young children, you know, how tough it was for them and the excitement for them going back to primary school, to senior friends. You were saying about your family that were very sociable and it's tough for them for all of a sudden to have that all taken away from them. Yeah, they couldn't wait to go back. And it wasn't like, obviously, they don't miss doing loads of schoolwork, yeah. um, but they really miss their friends. And when I asked them what they were most looking forward to doing when they got back into school, it was lunchtime, go play football you know, run around the yard, you know, talk to my friends about Harry Potter or whatever it is. That's the bit they missed more though, more so than anything else. 
now I do have two really kind of you know eager beavers for school like they're great they they don't complain about school or homework or they love everything about school um so I, I'm not so it's never a battle to get them to open a book or read or whatever <clears throat> but like that's not what they missed they miss their friends and friends at that age are so important yeah. I think particularly my son he just turned nine <clears throat> about two weeks ago and he's at that age where his friends are so important to him yeah. and you know even the Easter break was tough because he only got back he's in third class so he only got back for two weeks and then they were off again for two weeks Having not been in school since the end of December, he really struggled actually over Easter because it was almost like a bit of a tease that, you know, he got two weeks with his friends and then he had to be off again. And we didn't really see, we went to the park once uh, and, you know, you know, put threw a football around with another family that is in his class, like kids that are in his class. And that was it. Like I was literally once over the Easter holidays. Um, So like, yeah, he just, I think... They don't really know how to express their frustration as well. That's the other side of it. So they know they're cross and they don't know why they're cross. And God, you'd feel for them because yeah. it's all very, it's like none of us have lived through this as children. Yeah. Um, it's a once in a generational thing. And hopefully we won't ever know this type of pandemic in our lifetimes again. But um, it hasn't been easy on any age group. And I don't think, I don't think any age group should be kind of singled out as being yeah. hard done by, um, I think it's been hard for everybody. It's been hard for my parents. Like they've just yes. been at home. They haven't seen their grandchildren. Like it's been hard for every single age exactly group, I think. Is, yeah. You're best known for being an RTE sports <laughs> presenter. Growing up in Kilkenny, obviously you had to have some kind of interest or did you in sport? Yes, I tried every sport. Like I love sports. Mm. The gas thing about me is I'll try everything and I'll be really like, you know, gung-ho and I'm never great. Like, you know, I'm good. I'm good at lots of things. And I did every sport growing up and maybe I didn't stick at them all long enough to get any good at them. But yes, I did everything really from, well, in school, like, you know, that's where the hurling and camogie would have started really because, you know, that's just the way it is in Kilkenny. You go into junior infants and you get started. But outside of like Gaelic games, I tried, like I played tennis for years. Um, Like our summers would have been, you know, cycling into the tennis club. And organising matches and things like that. I've tried athletics. I swam as well. Um, everybody, I kind of, everybody seems to go swimming. I would have gone with the school, but we were in a club as well and we went swimming. I played basketball to, you know, senior kind of, senior team in the school kind of level. Loved it. Absolutely adored it. Um, probably played a bit more basketball in school then, in secondary school than camogie. Um, I was just better at it and I just, I enjoyed it more at the time. What else? God, I was a modern dancer for years. I did that for 20 years um, and I would class that as a sport because it's another type of strength and fitness. Yeah. And, you know, I kind of toyed with even going and doing that professionally after school. But then somebody, like my dance teacher was like, well, you're very tall, so you won't be able to eat. And I was like, okay, grand, that's that gone. <laughs> <laughs> what else? Yeah, I pretty much tried like everything. And when I came, when I moved to Dublin for work, then I found sport was a great kind of, it was a great way to meet people yes. um, because socially, like, it brings people together and I think the GA is great for that. So, like, I joined a camogie team and, like, just, you know, got loads of new friends and that's kind of one of the best things about sport, I think, and it's probably the most... It's probably why I'm most adamant my kids are involved in sport because it's for life. If you catch that bug early, it doesn't really matter. Like, I was never an elite athlete. Like, I never played county. I never played, you know, to a high level never ran fast. I just loved sport. I loved um, the kind of participation of it. And I think that's probably the most important thing. Um, so, yeah, my kids are already kind of nuts, nuts for it. So that's great, you know. 
Yeah, it's great to have that. I remember we were the same with my parents. We were into everything. My brother played rugby, which wouldn't have been really strong in Granard. Yeah. Gaelic football was. But I remember we've cousins in England. My grand lives over there and uh, he got into cricket and he came over here and everyone was going, what was he doing? And it was cricket. He just loved that. And I think it's brilliant for children, as you said, to give them that chance to go out. And, and it also helps their social skills as well. Oh God, it absolutely does. And like the thing about, you know, you're saying about cricket and rugby, I actually think there's a sport for everyone. Yeah. And I think traditionally, like in schools and particularly secondary schools and particularly girls secondary schools, yes. you have a choice to play camogie or basketball. And if, you, if you're not sporty and if you're not physical and if you're not competitive, that's not going to suit you. Yeah. Um, and like I would class ballet as a sport again I would because it's you know, the strength of ballerinas and ballet dancers is incredible and I just think that if we expose children to more sports they'll find the one for them it doesn't have to be running after a ball getting tackled falling down in the muck some people don't like that male or female but I just think we're not very good or we haven't been traditionally very good at exposing children to lots of different sports um, and so I think everybody will find it. But yeah, you're right about the social side of things. I think if you're involved in a team particularly, yeah. and even individual athletes will say this, if you're involved in a team, you've got this automatic little club, little fan yeah. club that has your back, you know, and it's not your sisters and brothers and it's not necessarily your cousins. It's just your football team and, you know, they have your back. And I just think that's really important for young people because life is hard enough and you do need somebody to bounce off outside of your family home. I think if we've learned nothing in this pandemic, we've learned that. So I just think sport for me is the go-to. And also you've got the, the added benefits of like, it's so good for your health, it's good for your mental health. You've got your endorphin release every time you go and do something. But yeah, I do think that there's a sport for everybody and we just need to work a bit harder at finding it. I think gymnastics is another brilliant sport. Like it's like, oh, I'm sorry, I did gymnastics as well. I loved it. And I just think it's really good for kind of all-rounder because yes. if you are good at gymnastics, you're going to be really strong in your core, you're going to be able to run, you're going to be able to have good hand-eye coordination. So up until the lockdown, my kids were both doing gymnastics and absolutely adored it. Peggy was great at it, Shamey, not so much. <laughs> coordination wouldn't have been great, but he's an unbelievable footballer. So like everybody has their strengths, you know. When you're growing up, yeah. you always have these dreams of what you want to do and some of them are kind of far-fetched. But when you go into secondary school, then you have this thing that you have to put down for your career. And I knew what I wanted, but at, at that age, it's kind of tough. Did you know what you wanted, that you wanted to go on to something? No, else? I hadn't a clue. I hadn't a clue. And like, it's so ridiculous that somebody at the age of 18 yeah. would know what they want to do when they're 30 or 40 or 50 or 60. Like, it's it's actually ludicrous. Um, and the more I think about it, I think we all have two, if not three careers in us. Yeah. Um, and I think that's probably the way we need to be teaching our young people um, or talking to them like guidance counsellors need to be talking to them in that way when they're 18 because I don't think anybody really knows for sure unless you feel like a real calling as a vocation and that's really specific to things like teaching and nursing but no I hadn't got a clue I just knew that I'm really bad at maths okay I'm not good at all of those kind of numbers and sciences subjects so I and I was really good at languages I just had a real grow and a real strength and an aptitude for language out of musical ear and that was kind of my only indicator so when I started looking at courses I was like okay I just need to get something really really broad so that I don't have to make a decision <laughs> and I was looking at arts and then I was thinking okay well I could do an arts degree in say Irish and music but then like I'm definitely going to end up teaching so I'd have to do a dip and do I definitely want to teach now I did consider teaching for a very long time like I'm raised by two teachers 
and because I was so into sport and I was very into music as well, my mum is a music teacher and so we played music all our lives in orchestras and the whole lot. I knew that I would be good at kind of a primary school teaching role where you could do some music with the kids and I loved art. I did art in school as well. So you could do art with the kids and then you could do sports with the kids. And I thought, well, I'd be a great primary school teacher. <laughs> then I did some teaching practice when I was like you know really young it's like oh god it's not for me you don't have patience and, and then obviously secondary school teaching I considered because you know if with an arts degree you could go on and do a HD yeah. and I was kind of swimming in and around those arts degrees and I was really I was looking for something really broad and then somebody I was my mum actually found this course and she was like this sounds kind of good because there's loads of there's a couple of languages in there and there is um, things like social studies but also things like photography and creative writing and it was just a really, really broad course and it was communication studies in DCU. So at the time you could do French. I think that option is gone, but I did French with my degree. I um, specialised in radio production, but I also did like cross-cultural communications, psychology, social studies, semantics, all these really interesting literary-based type um, subjects where there's lots of writing, you know, and that just really suited me because it was very, very academic, but there was a practical element of, uh, well, radio production. I, but I did get to dabble in photography as well, which I was crap at, and um, we, there was television production was an option too. But I just preferred the medium of radio. And my dad had kind of raised me; he was always involved in pirate radio at home. I used to go to the studio with him like way back in the eighties, and I just had that thing for radio where I, I, I was just kind of, I don't know, I was kind of curious about it so I picked radio but that course for me then just kind of set the ball rolling like I went in with a totally open mind I didn't really know what I wanted to do lots of people went on afterwards to do things like marketing and PR so they would have gone and done a master's in something like that and you know it's a three-year course so a lot of people actually do an extra year to just kind of streamline what they want to do by the time I got the end of it though I did really have um I kind of did know I wanted to stay in the media and in the kind of journalism side of things. And journalism was also a thing I did on the course, but I just felt like it wasn't maybe strong enough. So I went and did another course in Galway straight afterwards. Um, and I actually did that one through Irish because, again, I was really good at Irish and I wanted to I actually, I kind of decided I wanted to work in TG Carr by this stage. But I hadn't said sports. Like, I, I had so many interests. I hadn't just said, oh, I'm going to work in sports. I just kind of said, I work in media. And like, sure, I could, there's lots of things I could do. I have a background in music. I have a background in sport. I have a background in the Irish language, you know. So, I, again, I really did keep an open mind. And I do think that's really important. Like, I don't, like, I don't want people to wake up when they're 17 and go, oh, I want to do Evani Quillen's job. Like, create your own job. Mm. Like, you know, it'll evolve naturally. And that's really, like, honestly, that's really what happened with me because when I went to Galway then, it was a class of 15 people. It was a higher diploma in um, basically, like, um, communication and journalism again. Uh, there was a lot more journalism in this course and things like law, and I loved it because, again, it was quite academic. Um, and there was a practical element, and it was way more practical as well, so we got way more experience. And at the end of that year, you had to go on placement, and I kind of just asked, like, is there any chance I could do a sports placement? And I got one because nobody else had asked for one. So, really? uh, yeah, there were, there were, yeah, yeah, nobody, I, yeah, nobody, I don't think, well, there was one guy in the class who, um, Kieran Dupuyer, whose brother would be Sean Dupuyer, who played yeah. for Galway. And maybe he did ask. He didn't, he didn't do, a, I, as far as I know, he didn't do a sports one. But anyway, nobody else asked for one. And there were, and I think there was only, there was only one guy in the class and the rest were 14 girls. And I think I was the only one to actually ask about sports. So that was why I was kind of lucky. I ended up getting a placement with um, Underdogs on TG Carr, and that was 2004. 
And kind of like that's where it all started because I never really looked back. I just kept freelancing and freelancing and, and kind of trying to find work. Uh, got a couple of series out of the underdogs. It was quite sporadic though. You get two months work here, 10 months of nothing, two months work here, 10 months of nothing. And at the same time, I knew the Olympics were coming up. So I started writing letters to RTE, um, just basically saying, I'll, I'll make tea. <laughs> I'll make, you know, I'll make coffee. I'll do whatever just to get in the door. And that's kind of where it started. But like, I, I can't stress enough how it just kind of all happened quite organically. And I didn't, maybe that's what helped. You know, I didn't put all my eggs in one basket yeah. really ever. Um, and even when I started reporting, I was like, okay, well, let's try this, you know, because I was working behind the scenes as a sub editor kind of in production for a good few years before I ever held a microphone. And I was actually quite nervous about it. Total imposter syndrome, like, you know, what right have I to be doing this? Um, so I never really, ever really thought that it would be kind of a long-term thing. I just thought I'll try this. And, you know, there were a couple of, there were a couple of female directors in the sports department at the time. And I really looked up to them and I was like, oh yeah, I'll be a, you know, a kick-ass director. And, you know, the sky's the limit. And I never really got quite past reporting because I ended up falling into presenting. And then that's just a totally different role. You know, and that's what I've kind of stuck with. And I love it. I just get such a buzz out of it. Um, so, yeah, it was a bit of a, you know, haphazard little journey. And it was never, ever, I want to be XYZ when I was 18. Never. <laughs> it was very much suck it and see and keep my options open. I wouldn't, like, I wouldn't have been surprised if I ended up working in, like, journalism around the arts or something, you know. The thing about it is you had to keep your options open. And nowadays, it's so important to tell people that you have to knock on doors, you have to send letters, you have to keep at it, you're going to get knockbacks, and I'm back freelancing, and I'm lucky that I now have the, the work that I have. But for a long time, there was a lot of knockbacks, a lot of waiting for work and everything. It's, it's not as glamorous as people think it is, and it's not a case of just no. falling into it. No, it's not glamorous at all. Um it might look it for 10 or 15 minutes when you watch the television, but no, it's not. And yeah, it is important to put in the hard graft, I think. Um, and I just, I do worry a little bit about the generation that's coming up now that, you know, we're seeing Instagram people get really famous on Instagram. Yes. And that's great and everything, but, you know, jobs don't land into your lap and nor should they. It's not a great lesson to be sending young people. Uh, you don't have to work hard yes. or you don't have to have a degree. You just have to be insta-famous or you have to, you know, um, I don't know, whatever. Now, I, I just think it's happening a bit more often and the Instagram stuff is not helping. The Instagram kind of culture. Insta-ons, insta as they call it. Yeah, so they call it, yeah. Insta-famous. I just, I don't get it. My first radio broadcast oh my gosh it's so daunting to get there behind the mic and I remember it was actually Wimbledon and trying to get all the names yeah. that is daunting what's it like having your first appearance in front of the camera because whatever about being behind a <coughs> microphone yeah. and radio no one can see the face with the sweat hopping down well like I actually remember my first radio like my first radio broadcast would have been a bulletin on 2FM at lunchtime or something you know like a 90 seconds sports bulletin We've all done them. And yeah. I remember my first one. And 
I remember like, you know, 2FM, the way it's set up, you go downstairs into kind of the basement where it's where the studios are. And I remember like being up in the office and writing my scripts and doing my research and like getting ready and then going downstairs and going into the studio. And, like, oh my God, my, my heart rate was yeah. through the roof. I couldn't breathe. I was like, okay, take deep breath. I had rushed because I was like perfecting my script. I was like, I need to get it perfect. And then I realized, oh my God, it's a minute to three or it's a minute to two. <laughs> I'd run downstairs. So I'd run out of breath. My heart rate was already up sky high. I don't know how I got through it. It was horrific. Pretty sure I read it way too fast. Um, probably ran out of breath. Learned a really, really good lesson. <laughs> no matter if you're late, never run to studio. Yes. And to this day, if I'm late for my 6-1 slot, I will not run. Because I'll either be late or I'll get there on time or and I won't be able to speak. So there's absolutely no point in running and I, I still won't do it. So my radio one was probably a bit more... Um, terrifying actually because it was my first time going live on anything it probably prepared um, you for the tv one then oh it definitely did yeah. and i did a couple again 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 like that's what i that's what i mean about graft and working your way up i did a couple of years you know in production you know behind the scenes and television and editorial that really helped me i did a couple of years doing like radio bulletins and like then i progressed into television and by then i was kind of a little bit more comfortable with the whole scene now it was still a huge step up you know, to be on television. It's, it's, it is still different. Mm. I don't think it was as daunting because it had a bit of a grounding in, like, the background of broadcasting and obviously I'd been on radio. I'm trying to think of, like, what a time that I was really, really super nervous in a television studio. It was probably... Um, it was probably... See, I did a lot of television which wouldn't have been live. So I used to present a program called OB Sport and it would shine a light on minority sports. So that was probably 2008, 9, 10-ish. Um, and, but they were pre-recorded. So there was not the same buzz of a live environment. Um, so that was grand. I'm trying to, I, I just actually can't think back to what would, would have been my first live television broadcast um, it might have been like I think I might have done a League Sunday or you know so, like mm. a GAA kind of League Sunday and I do remember sitting on the couch and being like okay breathe <laughs> because I think nerves are good actually Denise I think yeah, if you're not nervous sense. you know no, I think you if you're not on your toes yes. yeah no if you're not on your toes you're not ready so yeah. if you're not like feeling some sort of a butterfly you A, don't care if it goes well and B, you're not on your toes. Like you're not going to perform to your best if you're not ready. And it's the same as an athlete lining up on the starting blocks. If you're not on your toes, you're not going to go off like that, you know, um, with that speed and with your best possible performance. So I think nerves are good, but obviously nerves can be crippling for some people. Um, and I think there's a fine kind of fine line there and you have to kind of balance how you get past the crippling nerves and into the like nice little butterfly zone and for me it's breathing so I do I say this to people who are nervous like even some I've you know um, talked to some pundits who are nervous about going on or whatever and like it's always breathing because even your heart rate you can bring it back down within within seconds if you start breathing really slowly in and out um, now I don't find I have to do that now obviously but like I'm talking 10 years ago for me I would have definitely gone to that little fix you know before the red light goes on I think another tip as well if anyone is going into kind of live environment and television is like if you start thinking about the amount of sitting rooms you're in like if you start thinking about the televisions that are on in all the pubs in Ireland for example like the 6-1 news is on yeah. a lot of the time in pubs or it's in sitting rooms it's in kitchens and it's on yeah. in the background nobody, nobody's you know a lot of people aren't even half listening or looking at what it's on but if you start thinking about the one million eyes 
Yeah. <laughs> you are just gone. There is absolutely no point. So I just, I really, when I started presenting, I wanted people to think I was talking to them. Yes. So I really tried to talk to my parents, like, or I tried to kind of be conversational in the way that I deliver the news. And I do that because I want to imagine one person behind the camera and not a million, you know. So that's kind of my, that's just my style. Um, and that's what kind of, that's what I've always done. It's hard for me to even remember because I don't really consciously do anything now. I just, yeah. that's just it's who so I am on, it, yeah. on the screen. I'm so used to it. But I do know back then, I remember thinking, don't think about all the eyes. Just think about mum and dad at home and you're telling them what the story is with whatever matches on or whatever, you know. But even yeah. reading at Mass, I remember um, I started really young. My mum was a reader and I wanted to go into it. And my first time, mum was like, don't look down the church. She says, you know, see at the bottom, we've quite a big church in Granard. Just look down at the door and pretend I'm down there and you're reading to me. Yeah. And that was it. And even now, when I went back after a hiatus, I went back yeah. and there was no one in the church because I'd done it in the middle of yeah. lockdown. I was still oh, thinking, yeah. there's mum down at the back of the church and I'm just reading yeah. to her. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so tip, and it's the same philosophy. Like you know, it's the exact same thing. I would have read at mass as well. <laughs> it's like probably like way more nervous doing that because you can yes. see everyone. It's different. Like a full church is intimidating, whereas there's, nobody in, there's there. nobody in a television studio. Like there's just a camera. There isn't even a human being behind the camera in the newsroom. So you know, it's robotic. So <laughs> mass is probably more intimidating. <laughs> To say you have covered lots is an understatement. Um, Olympic Games and everything like that. A highlight for you? Um, yeah, so many. Like, uh, so many. Um, the Grand Slam in 2009 was definitely a highlight. I went over there to report on that. Um, and obviously we went and won it um, in Cardiff. And that, Yeah, that was fun because I was literally sitting right beside the subs bench. Um, so even just during the match, it was just phenomenal. And then all of the excitement afterwards. And it was just such a busy gig as well. I was reporting live into like three bulletins a day and packaging. And it was just so busy. And I loved it. I relished the pressure <laughs> because it was such a big story. I knew if I messed it up, you know, I wouldn't tell it properly and, and all of that. So that was, that, was, that was great. And that was one of my first kind of, you know, I felt like it was one of my first big stories to report on outside of Ireland. I loved the Olympic Games in 2016 because I love the Olympics um, and I didn't travel I worked on the 04 and 08 Olympics at home and then I ended up on maternity leave in 2012 so I didn't go to London and then I went to Rio and so that was my first Games and it was like it was hectic it was mental and a lot of it a lot of it was not you know there was a lot of military a lot of guns it was a very strange environment at times but it was again like that real high pressured environment which I thrive on and so many sports and then so many memorable moments from it as well you know like interviewing Michael Conlon after he lost his fight or yes. interviewing the, the O'Donovan brothers on the, uh, like for the 9 o'clock news and they're eating, sitting eating pizza in the background before the interview like there's some really <laughs> funny moments from then so that was really great because, you know, if, you, if you're a journalist, you love following the story and that's what you do at an Olympics. You just go where the story is. There was a World Championships a year later in Sarasota, World Rowing Championships. That was a fantastic trip because it was in Florida for a week and, you know, going to the rowing in the morning and like, you know, the rowing is on very early. So you're up and crack it on and you're out and you're working. And it's, been, it's just such a beautiful climate. Um, and we had to stay, you know, for about a weekish. Um, but we we didn't really have anything to do in the afternoon. We were just waiting for racing to start again the following morning. So we were a bit like we were in Florida every afternoon, like you know, on the beach. It was just it was amazing. Um, you know, we were editing and we were sending back a lot of stuff and we were working really hard, but we were in Florida, <laughs> so that was a beautiful, like a really really nice trip. All Ireland final day, obviously, is 
something that you're just privileged to be at if you're at it anytime. Um, and one of the big ones actually was last year for the Camogie All Ireland final at Christmas time. It yeah. was so strange. It was such an eerie, but kind of I don't know. It was the the Crow Park was kind of electric that I night. It was really because it was dark. That I was very privileged to be there because no supporters yeah. were there. Yeah, that's the thing. And it was dark. So it was dark. It was Christmas time. Um, there was nobody there. So you were even more privileged on a final day mm. to be there. And I got to present it as well, which was a big one for me because I hadn't presented an All-Iron final before. So yeah. I loved it. Yeah, well, obviously, my God, like, you know, aside from the results, it was just a privilege to be there in the first yeah. place. But that was another, that's a real highlight for me as well. I really, really loved it. I was also presenting the hockey qualifiers when Ireland qualified for the Olympics. Um, that sudden death uh, penalty it's shootout started, against yeah. Canada in Donnybrook. That was another, you know, that would be another kind of re- more recent highlight as well. Isn't it great, you know, that you can look back on them? Like yourself, we are into sport and there are certain teams that we would follow and people would ask me, I love Leeds Rhinos in the rugby league. It's because my dad supports Leeds United and I have cousins over there in Leeds Rhinos. Oh, cool, yeah. You love American football and your team is the Green Bay Packers. How did you get an interest in them? Well, I always, I don't know, like, if, you know, a lot of people are kind of getting into it now, but, like, even 10, 15 years ago, I used to watch a bit of American football, but I'd always go into town for the Super Bowl. Um, And there'd always be somewhere that would show it, and it would stay open, like, till whatever time at night. Now, in more recent years, places have started doing ticketed events, you know, where you can go and watch it or whatever. But it it was a little bit more underground at the time. So I've always kind of watched it. And then um, when I met my husband... He, it turned out, had been to lots of the same places I'd been to, like watching these matches randomly. Um, so we kind of just kind of, because it was a kind of a shared interest, we started watching it a bit more probably together. And, you know, I come from a kind of, he doesn't come from a Gaelic Games background at all. Like he's from Rathfarnham and played rugby and cricket growing up. Like it's, you couldn't be more different to the way I was. I, I never played either of those and he never played anything I played. So we kind of bonded a bit more over the football. And yeah, so we started watching a bit more and then, you know, reading about the teams. And it was actually, I ended up getting a Packers, I ended up getting an Aaron Rodgers jersey because initially it wasn't the Packers, it was Aaron Rodgers, right? Okay, so he's obviously, now everybody knows he's a superstar, but maybe not so seven or eight years ago. Um, I ended up getting an Aaron Rodgers jersey for my husband for his birthday one year because um, we hadn't really committed to a team but we had kind of you know everybody was everybody Sorry, loved Patriots you bought well. him the top that you were going to probably rob on them is that it? Well yeah <laughs> And now it was massive. They're all massive, Bob. But yeah, but that was the first jersey that came into the house, basically. And the story behind the Packers as well is kind of what enticed us to them because they are kind of a franchise that's, they're just a, they're, they're a club that basically is owned by the supporters. Like it's not, yeah, it's completely different. Um, they're called the Packers because they came initially from the meatpacking district, um, of, uh, Chicago, I think initially. And then they moved up to Wisconsin. They're in Green Bay. But, um, so they're, yes, they're owned by, the supporters and uh, that's kind of the way it works the supporters are the shareholders like and it's totally different to the kind of corporate ownerships that are in the rest of the league so and then Aaron Rodgers just started shooting the lights out over the years <clears throat> so we stuck with them and we you know the jerseys kind of gathers up then and we you know the kids even now are into it and it's gas and um, so we always said eventually you know a bucket list kind of trip we'd eventually go so we ended up we ended up going then Brian was 40 um, in January 
2020. So we ended up going in December 2019 because we saw a couple of matches that were on within two weeks of each other, one in Chicago and one in... We, we went to watch the... Um, sorry, not Chicago, Boston. We went to watch the, the Patriots in Boston against the Chiefs and then we went up to Wisconsin and we got the Chicago um, Bears were at the Packers. So we got two games mm. in. And it was amazing. It was one of the best trips ever. And it was made even better with coming home to basically going into lockdown. Yeah. <laughs> it was mad. We just got it in time. And we think of the crowds and like the Lambeau Field is very unique in that there aren't seats there. It's just bucket seats. Like it's, it's, um, not bucket seats, bleachers. So it's just benches the whole way around. It's absolutely freezing cold. So the body heat actually is what helps. So it was like really strange even now looking back at those photos going, God, will we ever be squished in like sardines again into a stadium? I was at Celtic and Hearts last February. I never realised, you know, and I said to mum afterwards, I didn't really take it all in. And now I know that if I go to a game where there's going to be fans, I am going to take it all in again because you don't appreciate it. No, no, you don't. Like, sure, how, like, I mean, you don't know. I suppose you don't know. And, like, we were all so used to going to matches. Yeah. Like, it'd be different if you'd never been to big, um, you know, busy stadiums before. But, like, you know, we're at them all the time. So you kind of take that for advantage almost. Like, Brian was kind of even more blown away than I was because he probably hadn't been at as many kind of packed uh, stadiums possibly um, over the years just because of my work I, I, I tend to be at those like I would have gone to Champions League matches when I was kind of in production as well and you know I was kind of more used to it and then obviously Pro Park on all our final day is unrivaled I love how you mentioned the word gras earlier on and your gras for our language and sometimes when I'm looking at TG Carter or even yourself and I'm saying you know I wish I had studied better and I wish you know I had the love now of Irish that I didn't have when I was in school. And I love with your children, how did they speak the language? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't something that was important to Brian because he didn't grow up with it. Mm. But it was something that was important to me. Um, and I probably kind of <clears throat> realised it later. It was kind of, I didn't never really thought about it, I suppose, mm. when I had kids. And then I was like, oh God, yeah, no, I want them to have Irish mm. names. And I want them to go to an Irish school. Yeah, we were lucky. Like, it's actually, Dublin is, is tricky enough to find, you know, the school thing in Dublin is crazy. It's absolutely crazy. Um, and it's tricky to get into the Wales Bowls as well. And, um, you know, we would have got actually a cancellation place in June for September for my son. And, you know, we didn't really have a plan B. So it was quite stressful. <laughs> but I was delighted. And they're in a lovely school in Dublin and they're very happy. It's a very small school. Uh, it reminds me of the school I went to actually in Kilkenny. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not, we don't speak Irish all the time. Um but I do like that they understand the yeah. language and that they have it. And, you know, it's coming nicely for my, my, my daughter is only five. So she's only in, you know, yoga. So it's her first year kind of being immersed in it. And obviously they've missed a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's great. I do, um, I like them to have that option. I think it's, um, you know, a lot of people say to me, oh, we should have kept it up. And it's like, well, just keep it up then. And, you know, it's then they can decide then whether they want to go to an all-Irish secondary school. They yeah. can decide whether they want to do Irish in college. Whereas if you don't have it at that age, you're, yes. those decisions are gone from you. So, um, yeah, what's, what's the harm? I think, yeah, it was, yeah, it was important to me. And, you know, Brian is starting to pick up a few bits, but his Irish is atrocious. We never are away from sports. We're working on it or covering it or watching it. And during the lockdown, I decided to do podcasts <laughs> in sport. 
you have decided to do new venture for yourself and it's sport in a different way. It's the mad how we have to always kind of keep to the, to the sport topic. So uh, the new show, it's about people and their various jobs in sport. <clears throat> yeah, it's I like I just it was kind of one of those kind of, you know, I was thinking about it for a while and then one night I was like, I'm just going to do it. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to do it and it's going to be thrown together. It's I'm doing it on my own kind of on my own time here at home. And then I was trying to think logistically. Um, I was going to initially do Insta Lives, but I'm now going to record them on Zoom and put them up so that they're not going to kind of uh, get lost in Instagram. Because, you know, Instagram best, is yeah. a. Yeah, because then I can podcast them as well and I can put them up on YouTube or whatever and they're more accessible because not everyone's on Instagram either. So, yeah, I'm starting it now this week. So, I. Um, yes, I'm going to. I'm basically going to talk to you. Like, there are so many jobs in sport and lots of people want to work in sport, but they don't have the same skills as everyone else. Mm. And, you know, I'm crap at maths, so I couldn't be a data analyst or, you know, someone else is just like couldn't, you know, doesn't like public speaking, so wouldn't be able to be a TV presenter or whatever. So um, if you like sports, there's definitely a job there for you because there's just so many ways to make a living um, out of sport. And it does, you know, contribute so much to the economy. Um, and there are something like 40,000 jobs in sport in this country. So, um, I just wanted to, yeah, I just wanted to shine a light on them and on the people who don't get the recognition that they should necessarily, um, because we don't know who they are. I have people who are, you know, who will be a household name perhaps in certain areas. And then I have people who, you know, are working for a local sports partnership. And that's kind of what I want to do is want to have a really wide range of, people and in terms of their age their experience but also you know their their level you know it does not have to be elite sport so I'm really looking forward to it and um, yeah I hope people will watch and listen and maybe take some uh, tips from if they're young enough to start out a new career or maybe um, young at heart and want to uh well, switch over. Well, that's that's what I mean. Well, that's yeah. what kind of what I mean. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's nothing. I think we all have yeah. two or three careers in us, and I don't think there's any reason why we can't switch. I did a master's myself a couple of years ago because you know I never rest on my laurels either. Listen, Ivan, we could probably chat. Well, we're two women. Uh, we like sport, so we could chat for hours about this. Thank you so much all day. for uh, taking time out.